0: This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers
1: with real stories about making a living in music. Hello all, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Alberta and today I'm talking with drummer, percussionist, and educator Aron Serfati. Aron hails from Caracas, Venezuela, where he began his career playing mainstream pop, rock, and Latin music. In his mid-twenties, he moved to Los Angeles to study jazz at the California Institute of the Arts. Thirty years later, he has a slew of credits to his name, including Arturo Sandoval and Sergio Mendez, and is one of the most respected and well-loved educators in the region, having taught at CalArts, L.A. Music Academy, and USC. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at WorkingDrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. We have some new Patreon content up since a lot of us are doing more tracking lately. We've been having some of our guests talk about a specific song they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of that recording process. New stuff there from Don Perry, Jim White, and Joe Bergamini, so check that out. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. So Aron, of course, has tons of experience as a performer, both on drum set and percussion, live and in the studio, but he also has built quite a legacy as an educator, having taught for over two decades at three of the most prestigious music programs in Southern California. His teaching colleagues in these programs have included Peter Erskine, Joe LaBarbera, Ndugu Chancellor, Ralph Humphrey, Terry Lynn Carrington, and among his former students are many other names you've heard of. The term gentleman and scholar is thrown around a lot, but Aron is every bit of both, as anyone who has played with him, taught with him, or learned from him will attest. So here we go. Hope you dig. Aron Serfati.
0: My view list on reverb, it's all preamps and microphones (laughs) (laughs) and and a couple of mic stands.
1: Yeah, me too. Same. same.
0: Yeah. Jamie called me at the beginning of the pandemic, Jamie Tate. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, can you record percussion at your place? And I had nothing. Wow. And I immediately saw the future. So I, I couldn't do that gig, but I immediately saw what was going to come. Yep. And I said, this is not happening to me again. <laughs> so I went out into my savings quite irresponsibly. Uh, <laughs> We didn't, got, we didn't get into this business to be responsible. I don't. That's right. That was never the intention. Uh, so I got a couple of interfaces and microphones, and, and I rented a room that's already soundproof, the whole thing. So, and then I started doing that's what saved me. I, I use it as an office. You know, I treat it as an office. I go yeah. there during the day. I practice. I record. I experiment. You know, I have. My drum set set up. All I have to do is turn the light on, right? And I'm ready to record. And I have all my percussion: congas, timbales, bongo, pandero, surdo, yeah, calabash, yeah. cajon. Everything in there. Oh, that's so great!
1: So, so you said you said you like rented. You rented a space, or you are renting a space that was like already yes. soundproofed.
0: Yeah, it's one of those drummer buildings. Third Encore has. Yeah. But this particular um, building is mostly producers Mm -hmm. because the rooms are not huge. And there's a couple of bands, but the bands are out in the front of the thing and Mm -hmm. you you can barely hear them. Cool. And if I record, you know, if I record at 10 in the morning, everybody's asleep. Everybody else is asleep. (laughs) So I got the room for myself.
1: That's great. So it's like a, it's a lockout space, basically.
0: Yeah, it's a lockout. Yeah, and I have, I bought a new computer for it, for it. Uh, monitor, you know the whole thing. Yeah, I have, uh, and because USC never stopped uh, during the during the year, we were teaching remotely. I went out and got a camera switcher and I have, uh, four cameras. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, uh, set.
1: I'm sure Erskine got you set up with all the little gadgets and toys. You, <laughs> you. Oh, oh, <laughs> he, he's got six cameras. No, he 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 beat me. He, he <laughs> of got me beat. course, he did. Of course he did. Um, so you said, like, you know, when when uh, Jamie asked you about that, it, you thought, like, this is not going to happen to me again. W- yes. What do you mean, again? Like, were you, were you previously in a spot where, uh, or, I mean, I think a lot of us were kind of in a situation before the pandemic where we just had no way to record remotely. Um, yeah, we didn't need to. We could always
0: go into a studio because I had I, the few times that I was asked to do that before, um, I went to Jimmy Branley's because mm-hmm. Jimmy had his studio at his house and he gets incredible sounds. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, I, I would say, Jimmy, are you free tomorrow? Are you free day after? And if he wasn't free, then I had another uh, former student of mine. Not that Jimmy was. This, this guy, uh, Sam Bronner. Mm-hmm. He has a studio called uh, Blue Dream Studios. And that's actually where I recorded my second album. Uh, And I would call Sam. Mm -hmm. And if he had a couple of hours, I would just go there and do the thing remotely. But once all those options were not available and Jamie called, he was like, ah, crap. Okay, this is not happening again. This is not going to happen to me again, meaning at one and done. I mean, that happened
1: to me one time. I had to say no. Yep, I see no more. So yeah, the next time this comes around, I'm gonna be ready. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Exactly. Um, so, uh, in terms of like the, um, I, I think the pandemic just accelerated like where it was going anyway. I think the ability to record remotely. Uh, that's, that's where this was all heading anyway. Like it had been in the back of my mind. It had been in the back of your mind, just like year after year, like we got to get this shit going. I got to learn this shit. I got to buy a couple of mics, uh, you know? Um, so like now that, uh, you've gotten this going, um, how, how much of your, time do you see it uh you know taking up how much of your income how much of your work do you see that room and that ability uh, accounting for in in the coming years
0: uh i think i'm gonna start spending more and more time I, like i said because usc never stopped uh, the semester we kept teaching i spent a fair amount of time in that room you know mm-hmm. with cameras and all that but I was also experimenting so when, if and when bigger calls come around, then I'm ready. I did a couple of albums, uh, I'm, I was just working on uh, an album for Jose Marino. Jose Marino is uh, a bass player from Brazil,
2: mm-hmm.
0: whom I owe an eternal debt of gratitude. Because when I got here, my Brazilian playing was pretty good. But I had a gig every Thursday night with him. Mm-hmm. and he started tweaking. He's like, no, this doesn't sound authentic enough. <laughs> why are you doing this? Uh-huh. And why don't you change the symbol here? And what what are you doing with the acrostic? Are you paying attention to the guitar? Th- right. Those kinds of. Things. Yeah. So he called me up. he's trying to put out a new album. He's 83, 84. Wow. So he's, he's making a new album, so he called me up and I did some, a bunch of, uh, uh, I did on one track, I did just drums and percussion for mm-hmm. him. And uh, I did uh, a couple of other things with drum set and percussion. Funny enough, I'm getting a better percussion sound that I, I'm still tweaking the, the drum set. Aren't, aren't we sound, all? Yeah, <laughs> there's a sound I hear in my head, and I haven't been able to reproduce it yet. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's there's a tune. There's a Kansas album from the, the I think maybe early '80s, maybe late '70s, uh, and there's a tune in there called Relentless, mm-hmm. and that is the th- that is my favorite bass drum sound. Oh wow. In history, and I can't <laughs> replicate it,
1: so it's 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 annoying me a little bit. Uh, yeah, I know, I know the feeling. I've I've gone after a couple of my favorite drum sounds in here. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've kind of gotten in the ballpark. Uh, sometimes I've not really gotten close. Um, yeah. but like if you get in the ballpark, it's kind of encouraging. You're like, oh yes, that's, that's, I kind of see how it's done. okay. But then if, if you if you completely miss the mark, a lot of times it'll lead me to just something different that's also cool. Exactly. you know, so that's you, also great. You yeah. kind of get that out of it. Um, it was I, I wasn't expecting you to name a, a Kansas record. Uh, when you- <laughs> yeah, oh no, I'm a rocker at heart. My, my
0: very first influences were Ian Pace hmm. and Phil Earhart and uh, Bon E. Carlos. Oh, yeah, yeah, Rick sure, and uh, um, Alan White with Yes. uh, the Bill Bruford with Genesis back in the you know, the, right, the, the Bruford years. Uh,
1: who else? I, I, you know, Bonham, of course, Mitch Mitchell. Right, right. So there's all the, there's all these influences, um, like all these kind of '70s rock influences you, as you're growing up. But you're growing up in Caracas, Venezuela. So, si to talk about the music of of Venezuela and and what role that music played in your development and how it's kind of mixed with all that rock stuff you mentioned, plus all the jazz you play. Um, like it's, I it, go
0: ahead. It's, it's really funny because my dad, um, he was not a musician, but he at one point before I was born, he had had a recording studio and he also had a record manufacturing plant. So there was always he was very aware of music.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Actually, when he was 12 years old, he was playing a pianola hmm. uh, in the outskirts of Caracas for silent movies. Wow. So they would send, they would send the piano rolls and he would have to crank it. Oh, man. for the for the film, so there there has been music uh, not necessarily played by him, but there was music that he was hearing all his life. So he would sit with me and I would play along with records
4: mm-hmm.
0: and he's like, oh, okay, this sounds good, this sounds good. Eh, that's not working so <laughs> hot yeah you know yeah. So that was the beginning of my musical education. Obviously, I used to and I still love listening to baseball games on the radio because I can see the whole field Mm -hmm. in my head. Mm -hmm. If you watch it on TV, you're at at the mercy of the director. Right. Whereas if you have a good announcer, you know, you can see the whole field. Yeah. I loved listening to Vince Scully. Uh And, you know, and and there were some uh, in Venezuela, there was this guy named Delio Amado León. And he would uh, he he was the the announcer for my favorite team. So I would listen to them. And it it was usually on radio stations that played salsa the Mm -hmm. whole day. Yeah. Yeah. Salsa and merengue. So in between innings, they would play a little bit of uh, Hector Laveau. Or Celia Cruz or yeah. Tito Puente, things like that. And I was also listening to the radio stations there that had everything. The we, you know, you would listen to Miriam Makeba and next Frank Sinatra, and right after that Earth Wind and Fire. Mm-hmm. So it was it was before the formatting of the radios became a thing.
4: Right, right.
0: So it was basically a free for all. And also, you know, in Venezuela, the Afro-Venezuelan
1: uh, 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 essence of the music is still very popular. Right. And I mean, there is a strong folk tradition specific to Venezuela,
4: correct?
0: Oh, yeah. The, we have, depending on where you are, if you are close to the coast, you have more African influence. Mm-hmm. And if you are... Uh, in the middle closer to the plains in countryside basically there's more Joropo and you know there's more spanish influenced
3: music mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: so but they're um, i think because they they have been preserved so well they haven't mixed with jazz or other influences mm-hmm. uh, they are not they are not as popular right in the Late 60s, Aldemaro Romero, who was actually a friend of my dad's, a uh, great piano player from Venezuela, created, he wanted to kind of jump on the one bandwagon of the Bolsa Nova thing. Right. And he created something called Onda Nueva, New Wave, which was kind of jazz harmonies, but based on Venezuelan rhythms. Mm. And uh, it's quite interesting. And the, the fever of it was from like 69 to 73, 74.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it kind of faded away. And okay, so let me stop you. Like when, when you talk about Venezuelan rhythms, um, uh-huh. if, if I think about Afro Cuban music, I think of the clave. If I, think, yes. if I think about Brazilian music, I think of Partido Alto. Yes. Right. Those are just kind of the, the, the rhythms that those styles, generally speaking, are sort of built around. So yes. w- what what is that for Venezuelan music? It's three and two. It, it's
0: always three and two. So you have, um, for example, you have Right? yeah so you have the three and the two. But... ah these one, there are certain things in Venezuela where you hear the two displays. Right. Ah, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. So it's kind of an Elvin Jones thing, yeah. the way he played, the, the way he played the jazz waltz. Right. He would do one, two, three, one and two, three, one and
1: two, three, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so like that's
0: different, very var- yeah.
1: different variations on the concept of two against three.
0: Yeah, it's it's moving it yeah. a little bit. Okay, you know? cool, cool. That's for the Joropo. and then for the Afro-Venezuelan stuff, it's. It's a little bit like the Brazilian thing, which means it's not necessarily a clave, but it me- it's, it's it lives in that crack, which isn't sixteenth notes or triplets. Right, right. It's kind of that that middle. That's it has its its own buggy. swing,
1: own swing unto itself. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So all these things are happening at the same time, and then I discovered there was an album by oscar peterson and milt jackson called reunion blues yeah and it was uh it was lewis hayes and ray brown shit
1: yeah lewis so, hayes, lewis hayes is a kind of a sleeper of a drummer like he's not one of the household names like tony or elvin or max roach or whatever yeah. but every time you hear lewis hayes play i think he did a bunch yeah. of records with uh um uh horace silver too didn't he uh, he he was the uh, the drummer with uh,
0: Cannibal, okay. Adderley, yeah yeah, with Joe Sawaeno. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: When Joe Zawino was playing piano with Can- with Cannibal, right, right. Louis, I mean, God Almighty, he swings <laughs> so hard. So that was one of the albums that I would play for my dad, and he would say, Mm-mm, "That's not happening." <laughs> so, uh, so he just I actually stole it from a from a friend of mine's dad. He didn't. heard want... dad. Yeah, her dad had that album and I heard it and I
1: fell in love with it. Oh wow. And then I, I just kept it. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so your your dad didn't want you to play jazz?
0: No, he didn't like the way I played jazz. Oh. <laughs> He's like, no, that's not matching. That's that doesn't sound good. That uh. that's and to this day, to this day, 41 years after he passed away, I still hear his voice.
2: Eh, that's yeah, maybe not.
0: Uh, <laughs> you got to work on this one a little man. harder. That's why I'm here. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I moved here to learn to play jazz correctly, so I could, so I would stop hearing to, that. Voice. To
1: appease your father. Wow. Yes. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Oh man did it did it ever work? Did he get to a point where before he passed where he was like, "You're no, s- no, <laughs> shit, no, no, no." He mm. he passed two days after i turned 17 oh wow okay
0: so i you know i wasn't even a professional musician yet
4: right right
0: I, because i started late i started at 15
1: Mm-hmm. you started playing my, at 15
0: yes my first drum set my first lesson was when i was 15
1: wow yeah so moving to uh la came some some years after he died
0: oh yeah uh Tons of years. Uh, I don't think I would have moved here had he been alive. Because hmm. he was, you know, he was very um, militant about staying in Venezuela. He was. He went to prison fighting uh, a dictatorship.
4: Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: Because he, he, he was op- opposed to the dictatorship, so he was a political prisoner. Wow. Where most of his friends flew, you know, fled the coup, basically. right. right. And they lived in exile. He stayed. Wow. And he's like, "No, okay, if I got, if I have to go to prison, I'll go to prison. I don't mind."
1: Wow. And what yeah. what dictatorship was it under at that time? Uh Marcos Perez Jimenez. That
0: was 53 to 50 uh, 51 to 58. Wow. And he the that dictatorship burnt his record manufacturing plant twice. Jesus. Burned it to the ground. Man. So he And then he he also had a recording studio that was burned to the ground by the, the by the government and in that recording studio there was a prohibition of assembly right because they didn't but he disguised a couple of meetings as recording sessions man so here there are a bunch <laughs> of uh, underground political you know activists getting together under the guise of being musicians yeah so just so they could actually Meet and decide what was going to happen and what they're going to do and
1: what what the strategy was. Right, man. It's so interesting how, especially in in Latin culture, um, music plays a political role. Um, I've because I've talked to um, like my my mentor in grad school is a guy named Doug Allwater who is uh, just you know a scholar of all things Brazilian and Afro Cuban, and he talked about. Um, You know, regimes in Brazil, um, I don't remember the exact regime it was, but like musicians, uh, were being closely monitored as, as far as what their songs were about, what their lyrical content was. And they like, they disguised messages within the songs uh, yeah. you know, like they would write a song about a monkey and a rooster and on its face, it seems like just kind of a nonsensical kids song or whatever, but it like, you know, the monkey is this guy and the rooster is that yeah. motherfucker. And yeah, you know, exactly. and then I, I talked to, uh, uh El Negro uh-huh. about, I mean, he like, he said he went to jail for playing <clears throat> in a rock band in Cuba when he was yeah. like 17. Um, yeah, and so like in, in Venezuela, the, the government was on your dad's case, uh just kind of for the same reason cuz they're suspicious of musicians and artists in general No, he was he was a serious political activist. Uh. One of his best <laughs> So he wasn't trying to be friends. slick about it.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. He was he was hard-headed. Yeah. One of his best friends became president wow. eventually. Man. Uh they they my my mom's brother who was a dear friend of my dad's lived in exile for a long time. Hmm. Uh, it was. It was. They were all politically engaged. They were all Democrats. They believed in democracy, and that's what they were fighting for. the 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 the, the music business was his business, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. Um, he wasn't writing music or anything like that.
1: Right. Right. But he was. He was in it. He was kind of associated oh, yeah. with these oh, people, yeah. and yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So how did that inform? Um, I mean he he seemed kind of hard-headed in all ways but uh but also hard-headed about music and about his musical yeah. musical taste so like how did that yeah. how did that um affect your development as a musician Well there was a lot of
0: music around the house all the time and he, and he would tell you, I can't sing for anything. I can't say, I, you know, if, if it's between saving my life and singing, I'll, you know, I'll say my prayers. And <laughs> <laughs> but he knew, and sometimes we would be in the car and we would be listening to opera or we would be listening to some kind of tropical music, some, you know, uh, the, uh, what was his name? Oh, Felipe Pirela. Hmm. Felipe Pirela was a, a really famous su- uh, singer from Venezuela. He died in Puerto Rico. He he got mugged uh, and murdered in Puerto Rico back in the s- late 60s, I want to say. Hmm. But uh, he had a great voice. So my dad would play him constantly. Uh uh, and then me playing the rock thing and listening to stations, and my classmates uh, in high school playing stuff, you know, so it was there was I can't say that there's a specific uh, style of music that I wanted to play exclusively. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to play everything, yeah. I thought, and I thought, because here's the thing, I fell in love with the drum set. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the love of my life. You know, I flirt with the congas and I flirt with all the other <laughs> stuff. But my my wife is the drum set. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I assumed that I had to learn every style of music that had drum set in it.
4: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Ridiculous. But... <laughs> <laughs> that was my assumption. Yeah. So, okay. So I got to learn this one now.
1: Well, it's not just an assumption. I think so many young drummers, you know, especially if they're serious about it, are are told uh, like you've you've got to learn every style. You've got to learn, yeah. like you said, if a if it if a drum set shows up in it, you got to know it. Um, yeah, and there's you there, at, yeah. there's some merit to that, um, and I understand like the the spirit behind that sentiment. But um, you know, we've talked about it before. How I think uh, at at a certain point, if you don't sort of choose some. Uh, uh, you know, focus that you're gravitating towards in terms of styles, then you're going to end up being a Jack of all trades and a master of none. You're going to sound, you're going to sound okay on a bunch of different stuff, but you're not going to sound really kick ass on anything. Um, Yeah. So when in, in your generation, um, for a a kid in Venezuela who is, is like interested in music, interested in the drums, is it more typical for, uh, like hand drums, Latin percussion to be the thing. Like, were were you kind of an anomaly in pursuing the drum set?
0: I, I yeah, a little bit. Uh, the, the more popular thing to do was to play congas or timbales or bongo. Mm-hmm. Not so much Brazilian percussion, but just the Cuban tradition, right? And um, uh, but I was in love with the drum set. Yeah, I, that, that's what I. That's what I wanted to play. That's what I wanted to, to practice all the time. Wow. So it, it was not necessarily an anomaly, but I was in the minority.
4: Right, right. For sure.
0: And then the, at, at the time I started um, playing drums, I actually, uh, I was self-taught. I took one lesson with a cousin of mine. She had a rock band and she played guitar and she played bass and she also had a little uh, basic um, knowledge of the drums. So that was my first lesson. Hmm. And then I just took it, just took off from there. Yeah. But uh, at this time, this is 1970, 78, 1978. Uh, the El Sistema was going on. Which is what? The, the, the old, the orchestra thing the, the symf- Symphony Orchestra, the Youth Symphony Orchestra. Oh, in right, 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 yeah, okay. That, that's when it was starting. It started in 1974, so it was still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, if I recall correctly, I took one lesson with an American percussionist that was brought in, I can't remember his name, but he they were brought in to teach and play in the orchestras to raise the level of the orchestra and also teach the kids. Mm-hmm. So I took one lesson with this guy and we actually started w- working in, on the molar technique.
4: Oh wow. That's
0: that's all I remember. Uh-huh. Cuz he, he called it a seagull wing. Oh yeah. He he called you know he called the motion that a seagull wing. So but that's about it. Those two lessons and then I went on uh, went off on my own. And then you know Otmaro, yes, Otmaro Ruiz, piano player.
1: I don't Oh, Otmaro, yes, yes. Yeah. Also from Venezuela, correct? Yes. Yep. No, I'm here because of him.
4: Oh, wow, okay.
0: Yeah. We we've known each other for 43 years? Yeah. Or so. Wow. I
1: never got and, to play with him while I lived in oh, LA. Man. Like we we crossed paths a couple times um, and I I never got to play with him. I was scared of him, quite frankly. I was like, he was so fucking good. He is so good. Um, I was I was just like, if I ever if I ever end up on stage with this guy, he's just going to eat me. Like such a powerful player. Um Yeah, he's he's <laughs> it, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It is
0: absolutely ridiculous. But <laughs> so um he started teaching me basic notation and reading. Hmm. And then he moved here in 89 to go to CalArts. And then he started calling me. He would call me on a Sunday night. It's like, you have to be here. You have to be here. This is the school for you. This is where you need to be. You have to come here. So I finally caved in. I was married and I had a child already. Mm. So um, when my son turned one year old, we moved. Wow. And um I've been here ever since. I'm going on 30 years now.
1: Man, that's amazing.
0: More than 30. L- last January was 30 years.
1: Okay, yeah. So you you came to LA to go to CalArts with Otmaro. Uh, yes. Um so as, you know, <laughs> as a self-taught um, you know, kid, uh had you ever been had you ever been to the United States before? Had you been outside of Venezuela? Uh, yes. Many many times. That's um, right. Because you had you had a fairly extensive like you did a, quite a bit of touring and recording before I you did. moved. Yes, I, okay. I had.
0: I, I, I was uh, first or second call for a bunch of jingles and albums back in Venezuela. Oh wow! So I basically learned to behave in the studio by going to the studio. Right. So it was a, of a paid internship. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, so I had. I learned to play with a click, I learned to read mm-hmm. basic stuff because of Otmaro, uh, because he was a conservatory-trained musician. Mm-hmm. He, he's actually a classical guitarist.
1: No shit. Yeah, the piano was his second instrument. God, he's even, he's even scarier <laughs> to me now. <laughs> I know, it's insane. Environment of Cal Arts. Um, I didn't go there, obviously, but I, I, I have known a bunch of people who went there, um, and it it seems like uh, an intensely creative, uh, esoteric environment um, where people are encouraged to sort of uh, follow their bliss creatively. It's not a, yes. it's not a vocational school <laughs> at no. all. Um, no, but it, it seems like your experience up to there, like you know, playing jingles, doing some tours, doing the studio thing, was quite vocational. So, yeah, how did you adjust to that like intense, creative, artistic environment?
0: That was a bit of a shock. I will not lie to you, <laughs> but uh, because I remember one of my first uh, my first semester and one of my lessons with John Bergamo. He was oh, my yeah. drum set teacher. Yeah. I say, I said to John, John, I would really I've never worked on my rudiments and I really would like to work on rudiments with you. And his answer was why? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then he followed with come up with your own.
1: Yeah. It's
2: like, no, yeah. that's not what you
1: want. And I like I have never met John Bergamo, but like I've I've read some stuff that he's written, and I've played some pieces of his. Like I know a little bit about him, and he that that's just the perfect answer because he just seems yeah. like this kind of hippie drum Yoda. Uh, <laughs> it's like do he, or do not, fuck the rudiments, do you? That's
4: really like, <laughs> do you yeah.
0: exactly? That was the whole message. He did. I could not stop laughing <laughs> for the whole lesson. He. Looked at me and he said, look, it's seven against five. He did seven against five with his eyebrows. Come on, Zach. I kid you not. (laughs) I kid. I swear. It's like, (laughs) John, what? How? Why? Yeah. But he was that guy. He was exploring. He was thinking rhythm all the time. It didn't matter if it was a rudiment or not a rudiment. It was irrelevant. Mm -hmm. As long as it was some kind of rhythm,
1: he was all in. Wow. He he was quite a character. So how did you apply that to like what you had already done? Like what goals did you have or what goals did you develop while you were at cal arts because like you've you've had this sort of vocational career up till there and and so what path did cal arts and bergamo then put you on
0: well i started learning theory and ear training you know i i took a few lessons on marimba with uh julie spencer
4: oh wow and i don't know cool. if,
0: if you know julie but she is
1: i played some they, of her pieces Jeez, yeah, she's one of the julie she's and a, she's a sweetheart and she's one of the marimba OGs, like, yeah, just, yeah. you know, her and Keiko Abe and, and uh, you know, a handful of others, like she's yeah. she's in there. So Julie was teaching at Cal Arts at the time. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I was so freaking lucky. <laughs> and all these guys kept giving me information, kept giving me information. It's like, no, no, check this out and try this. And... You know, now we're gonna listen to Art Ensemble of Chicago, and now we're gonna listen to Mariah Carey. What? <laughs> like, uh, okay, sure, right? But um, Gerald Wilson was my jazz history teacher. Wow. Yeah, it it, it was insane, insane. Yeah. And then uh, I studied with Tootie Heath, uh huh, also, and I uh, we just worked on my symbol and feathering. Uh-huh. He was very very militant with the feathering and um he was going out on tour and he would not tell us he would just book a sub for the lessons so one time i show up for my lesson and it's billy higgins (laughs) like wait what okay and I, i and it was funny because my lesson with billy was incredible not on the technical side but on the um on the, uh, philosophical side.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: He said, uh, I came in and I was totally depressed. It's like, I can't make this thing swing. I can't, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but when I play the damn symbol, it doesn't swing. Like, what do you mean swing? Well, I don't sound like, you know, you or 2 or yeah. So what, where are you from? I'm from Venezuela. Okay, play me a Venezuelan rhythm. So I played a little bit of Joropo, and then he started swinging on top of it. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. If you don't bring who you are, if you don't bring anything to the music, you're doing a disservice to the music. Hmm. You have to bring who you are. (laughs)
3: like,
0: oh, okay. So fast forward a couple of years, I I was studying with Peter. Erskine, not at CalArts. This is, I'm done with CalArts and I'm taking a lesson with Peter. And I was in my head and he's like, Yeah, you know what? I realized that my jazz playing is like my English speaking. Doesn't matter how well I do the language thing, Mm -hmm. I will always have an accent. Mm -hmm. And he lifts his head from the computer. He's like, yeah, but does that stop you from having a conversation? Yeah. Like, okay. Right. So I got the same message twice. Yeah. I got it now. Yeah. I got
1: it. That's that's such a a great uh, lesson, not just about jazz, but just like about any playing. Um,
0: yeah, about music in general.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you know, trying you know, don't don't try to don't try to shed your accent. Like, make it part of how you communicate. Um, exactly and yeah that like we've we've talked about you know the idea of emulating your heroes and trying to sound like them and that's that's a worthy pursuit because you'll just learn so much touch and feel and style from doing that but ultimately you are not going to get all the way there because you're not them yeah and you don't have their you don't have their um brain you don't have their hands you don't have their life exactly um exactly so Coming out of uh, schooling, like, is there a certain type of gig that you sort of had your eye on that you wanted to come out of CalArts or come out of, uh, was it at USC that you studied with Erskine? No, 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 uh, no, no, uh, I was studying privately with him. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, coming out of that, like, did you did you go to LA like so many people do? thinking, like, I want to play that kind of gig, or I want to play with this artist, or... I came to L.A. with the
0: firm intention of going back home. Hmm. It was like, okay. I actually, the first school I applied to was Drummers Collective in New York. Oh, wow, okay. On my honeymoon. I, I you know, my then wife and I went to New York for our honeymoon, and I said, you know what? I'm going to audition for Drummers Collective because I need to study drums... You know, How? the drum set is the American instrument. How's that go over here? <laughs> it was hilarious. No, she was fine. She she'd helped me with the bus route and everything. I took oh, a perfect. bus. Good. Good. It, it, it was great. <laughs> uh, and I actually bought a Black
1: Beauty that time at Manny's too. So. <laughs> I love it, man. You 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 married you married the right woman, man. If you're if you're doing auditions eventually, and buying snare drums on your honeymoon, that's
0: <laughs> eventually not. But yeah.
1: <laughs> but well, good, um, good on her for that little chapter, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: So um, I went to Drummers Collective, and the guy said, "Yeah, okay. When do you want to start?" Basically. So because he liked my groove, but I obviously didn't have. I had some holes in my playing. And then I talked to, and then I wanted to apply to MI. And at this time, Jeff Berlin had been in Venezuela, the bass player. Yeah. Uh, So we did a a recording session in Venezuela. We played together with a sax player that was uh, Lionel Hampton's big band musical director. His name was Thomas Chapin. Hmm and great alto player. So the band was Jeff Berlin, Thomas, Otmaro and me. I was 23, Mm -hmm. 22, 24. So I asked Jeff about, uh, Drummer's Collective and I asked him about, uh, Musicians Institute. And he said, no, don't go for a year, find a university, find a college, do the four years, because you will learn way more that way.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So he steered me away from uh, from the vocational one-year program thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Otmaro had been doing some research on CalArts, so he moved here, and then he started calling me. He says, this is the place, this
1: is the place, this yeah. is the place. So you're touching and- on something that uh, I wanted to ask you about, which is like, it, at, at least on your website, it, it says that you are teaching at USC and Cal Arts and LA Music Academy. Um, mm-hmm. And it is it currently those three? No, uh, uh, USC gave me a full
0: time position, which forced me to withdraw from the other two.
1: I see. Okay. Well, congratulations. <laughs> yes. Thank <laughs> um, you. But so you have you have taught at all three of those institutions, yes. and they're they're very different, and they kind of represent. Um, you know basically in my mind the three major types of uh music schools that one can go to right yeah cal arts is um sort of this inculcated creative artistic bubble where you just like immerse yourself in uh all things artistic and yes yes uh usc i think is more mainstream jazz focused big band small group um you know straight ahead drum set and then uh L.A. Music Academy is, in my mind, kind of modeled after a musicians' institute. There are places that's like, exactly what it was, right? So it's like a one-year or two-year performance certificate program. Um, yes. More uh, pop, rock, funk, fusion-based. Some jazz, but like yeah. it's like you know uh, training for uh, more blue-collar drumming, I guess. Yeah. So, you've taught at all three of these kinds of places, and um what what are your takeaways as far as like the pros and cons of, of each of those environments? Th- that's a
0: wonderful question. Um, I did that from 2000 to 2014. I had those three gigs for 14 years. Wow. Uh, regardless of the driving. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. But you know what? Uh, I had the privilege of... Seeing some of the best uh, drummers that we're still listening to by being in all those three places at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was—I uh, remember from LA Music Academy, it was uh, Nate Wood. Hmm. Nate came to LA Music Academy when right at, uh, fresh out of high school. Wow! Like, who is this kid? Right. What? what are you doing here <laughs> why are you here so anyway um he he did uh six months the six difficult months on the drum set program and then he did the six difficult months on the bass program man and then he went to cal Arts and finished his ba in three years he's a freak and and anybody, his band came out of Calarts. They were all at Calarts together.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So I got to see Nate. Mm-hmm. I got to see Sean Horton. Yeah. Uh, he went to LA Music Academy. I got to see. Uh, I got to see Louis Cole.
4: Wow. Yeah. At,
0: at USC, fresh out of high school. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Right. Uh. Uh. Ryan Shaw, Jake Reed, uh, Ryan McDermott. I mean, all these kids are playing. Ben Rose is writing and playing with a bunch of people. Sam Brunner it owns a studio. I mean, all these guys, I was privileged to see them um, grow up,
3: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm.
0: whether it was one year, uh, Stefan Emig, who's killing it in Germany.
1: Oh, He's, wow. Everywhere in Germany, and also Jean uh, 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 Jean Coy went to Cal Arts. Jean Coy was a Cal And Art. Tina, um, T- Tina Raymond. Yes, thank you.
0: Tina Raymond. Uh, she did. She auditioned for the master's program at USC. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alan Pasqua and I were doing auditions. And I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating. Four bars into, we looked at each other. Okay, she's in. <laughs>
1: four bars
0: yeah it's like
1: yeah yeah, fine
0: yep but the thing is she she ended up going to cal arts and studying with joe la that's right that's right so i it didn't matter to me i told her i i don't care do you take you wherever you go i'll be able to witness right yeah so so i'm fine with that yeah so now she's she's the head of the jazz program at cal state northridge that's oh
1: she's at cal state northridge
0: yeah, she's the head of the jazz program.
1: That's insane. I didn't know that. Yeah, I knew like yeah, a, a few years ago, she was like head of percussion at somewhere in Pasadena. Was it Pasadena City College? Or? No, it was uh, LA City College. Okay. Okay. L- LACC. So no, no, she's, she's like, she's in the chair that, that John, um, uh, trumpet player, uh, D'Aversa. John Diversa yes. used to run. And now Tina runs that program. Yes. Holy shit. That's amazing. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Wow. Good for yeah. her. It's really good. Um, I, one of the first interviews, she was one of the first people I interviewed for this podcast. Um, oh, that's awesome. And we didn't have a lot of time. Like, it was only maybe 35 minutes or something. Um, but, I, man, I should circle back with her because yeah. <laughs> it'd be great to talk yeah. to her again.
0: It would be. Yeah, she's awesome. Uh, there's a, a percussionist, a classical percussionist at USC, Lauren Costi. I know her. And I've inter- is- interviewed her as well. She lives in London. She lives in London yeah. and she was playing congas in my Latin band <laughs> at, at USC. So I have I have seen all these kids grow up and become forces in mm-hmm. the music industry, developing their instrument, developing my instrument.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, it's the, the most, the, the highest of highs is giving them an idea and watch them run with it, turning it on its head yeah. and throwing it back at you where you're like,
2: what? <laughs>
0: you you did what? Yeah. yeah.
1: It's it's incredible. I, my, it's, that's the highest high. My teacher For me anyway. My teacher Doug Allwater tells a, a great story about um so Danny Carey the drummer from Tool grew yes. up grew up in Kansas City. Um, and, uh, so, you know, Doug has been teaching at all levels, uh, in Kansas city for like 40 years. And Danny Carey was one of his students at, I believe at university wow. of Missouri, Kansas city, where I went and Doug tells these stories about like, you know, they were going through all the Brazilian stuff. So he would teach, you know, one week he would show Danny, you know, like the partido Alto and the next week Danny would come in with like Partito Alto right-hand lead, left-hand lead, partido Alto in seven, Partito Alto... like. And Doug was just like, man, get out of here. You're- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Darren Pfeiffer. Uh, I don't know if you know Darren. I don't think I he do. Was,
0: he was the drummer in the Hollywood Undead okay. uh, for a while. And he has the Pfeiffer Drum Company now. Mm-hmm. He went to Call Arts.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He had a bass drum, snare drum on the other foot, and turntables. And it's like... <laughs>
1: <sighs> yeah. And he can play the crap out of the drums. It's amazing, man. Like I uh I, I don't know if you can relate, but my my focus has always just been on the drum set and like, you know, yeah. n- not reinventing the wheel, just trying trying to make things feel good. <laughs> and that's enough of a challenge for me that's just like this constant battle of like just this four-piece kit with two cymbals. like how do i make that feel better i just want that to be badass and then you encounter these people like nate wood who's playing like you know program shit and keys and bass and drums at the same time or this dj guy you're talking about like these people whose brains are just on fire and it's coming out their limbs just blow my mind i i I know (laughs) it's (laughs)
0: <laughs> and i've been witnessing that for 25 years
4: yeah yeah
0: you know it's 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 a privilege i i keep telling my students i learn more from them than they do from me
4: mm-hmm.
0: but it it's fantastic so, so back to the original question <laughs> so if you want to if you want to get into the drum set and just play drum set and you don't care about uh, a diploma or anything you go to a vocational place mm-hmm and with Ralph Humphrey and Joe Porcaro, rest in peace. Yeah. That was a, a, a you know, foolproof. It was fantastic. It was a great program. Uh, if, if you were my child and you were right out of high school, I would tell you, go to USC for your undergrad and immediately go to color Arts for your master's.
3: Because
0: mm. you will get the foundation bashed in your head. <laughs> And then you will have the perfect lab to experiment and fall flat on your face if you need to. Mm-hmm. Because it is a safe place. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's encouraging it's an encouraging place. Plus, my favorite music teacher of all time is there. He's the director of the jazz program, David Roystein.
4: Mm, right, right.
0: If you know I I I wanna be him when I grow up.
1: <laughs> basically. Well, you, you talked about like the uh, uh, the fundamentals sort of getting bashed into you at at USC, yeah. um, and that uh, like I've interviewed Peter a, a number of times, and I've interviewed a bunch of his students, um, and it seems like his um, and I mean you're a former student of his from from way back when. It it seems yeah. like you know Peter will talk about being creative and being artistic, and I think that's ultimately what drives him. But in terms of his drum students. Um, Peter is about, like, getting your house in order. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Like, if there's things in your playing that, that are not going to fly in in the NFL, like, Peter is going to find them and... <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Is that the experience that, you had
0: with him? Yeah. It's like, okay, so we'll. Uh, I remember the f- f- first lesson I had with him. I was already playing with Arturo Sandoval hmm. cuz I moved here in January of 91 and in November of 91 I got the gig with Arturo. Wow. So I I saw Peter play with Andy Laverne at Catalina. This hmm. is 90 early 92. Mhm. And I said, Mr. Erskine, I need to take a lesson with you. I love your playing, but I, I want to study with you. I'm going to call Arts. I was a 27-year-old freshman. That was the other thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, but, uh, so I had an idea. I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do on the drum set. So I talked to Peter. I called him up. And I bring a video of me playing with Arturo. So we sat in front of the VCR and the TV is like, Two bars in. Is why are you doing that? <laughs> no, that doesn't. Yeah, no, that does. That might work, but no. Why are you doing all
3: these? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, oh,
4: <laughs> and that's
0: exactly what I wanted too. Yeah, that's you know, find the holes so I can plug them.
4: Right, right.
0: And and you know, and then we became friends and we became colleagues. Yeah. So it's 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 a it's a relationship by treasure for sure,
1: yeah, yeah, and i I think most of or all of his students that I've talked to um you know, shared that sentiment like he he is not gonna yeah. pull any punches with you, there's gonna be some tough love uh and yep. and some of it's gonna be hard to hear, but uh he he is ultimately um you know i mean he he cares deeply about his students he's he's not gonna spare yes. just because he's not gonna spare your feelings doesn't mean that uh, he is not just ride or die with his students. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. No, 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 and and he he cares a lot about his students. Yeah. That's that's the bottom line. So he he tries to make sure that they're successful
1: when they get out. Right. And Jake, I was texting with Jake Reed and and he was saying, you know, the same thing about you and just what what a passionate educator you are. And in in terms of, you know, going back to this idea of these three different schools and these three different environments, um, do you do you change your approach or did you change your approach depending on which building you were in, like which environment you were in? Or was it more of a constant philosophy that was kind of.
0: I read somewhere that Alan Dawson said used to say, I will teach you to play drums. I will not teach you to play a style of music.
3: Hmm.
0: What you do with that is totally up to you. Mm-hmm. I'll teach you the language of the instrument. And I, I kind of followed that philosophy in the sense of here are the tools for you. That, this is what I was teaching at uh, LA Music Academy. I was teaching the Afro-Cuban and the Brazilian drumming. Mm-hmm. So this is the language I need you to learn. What you do with it, if, if you love if you fall in love with the music i did my job right but you have more to study yeah if you hate the music i did my job <laughs> because you have enough information to make a decision and from here on out If you don't like it, you don't have to waste your time on it. So you can dedicate your time to double bass drum a la George
4: Colias (laughs) or, you know. Right, right.
0: So either way, I'm giving you enough information to get where you want to go.
4: Yeah.
0: Whether you don't like it or whether you like it. So that's, you know. So that that has always been my approach. So I was the same person at all, at all three places. And the funny thing is, at Cal Arts, I was el comandante. They used to call me <laughs> el comandante
3: as if I was a dictator.
1: <laughs> and then at USC, I was the hippie, happy-go-lucky guy. Right. Compared to Erskine, you're yeah. like the safe, but you're the good cop at, <laughs> <laughs> at Exactly. At exactly. USC. <laughs>
3: exactly.
0: Yeah. So it was. It it's it, it was fun. I miss Cal Arts. I miss both places. Mm-hmm. I miss CalArts and uh, LA Music Academy, but I miss CalArts a lot because there, you know, things happen there that don't happen anywhere else on the planet that I am aware of. Yep. And, you know, I've been privileged enough. This is I'm going to start my 25th year
1: at USC. That's amazing. And you're like, as far as USC is concerned, over the years, I mean, you've been one of I don't know, what, three or four or five, like, drum faculty that they've had at one time. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, there's you, there's Erskine, there's been Terry Lynn Carrington, there was Ndugu. Um, yes. And others, I would imagine. And Endugu was there when I got there. Mm-hmm.
0: And then uh, for a while, it was Ndugu and me. And then uh, um, also, oh, Greg Field. It was originally Greg Field and Endugu. Mm-hmm. Then Greg left, uh, he started pr- uh, producing albums and working on that end, uh, on that side of the glass. So he stopped teaching there. He's still in the board of uh, advisors of the music school, mm-hmm. but he's not teaching. So it was in and Me, then Peter was brought in, then uh, Terry Lynn was brought in. So it was the four of us. And then Peter went on tour with Diana Krall, right? So they brought
1: in uh, Roy McCurdy. Jesus, I don't know of so any the- other like you. You go to most schools, and like if they have a jazz program, maybe they have a drum set person, right? Maybe yeah. maybe they have one adjunct faculty, uh, you know, teaching drum set, but but USC has four like f- full time just yes juggernauts just sitting there like. <laughs> I don't know of anywhere else like that in the world. I mean, like, Drummer's Collective is sort of that, but... Yeah. Um, uh, we did, uh, I organized a panel
0: a bunch of years ago, and I had uh, Ndugu, Roy, and Peter. Hmm. And we just sat with all our students. Uh, okay, tell me your story. Hmm. Tell, tell me everything. I used to have lunch with Ndugu every Tuesday and it was an ongoing date.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: We, only, we would only call each other if we were gonna miss it.
4: Right, right.
0: But otherwise, we knew we showed up at the same uh, restaurant in, on campus and have lunch together.
3: Hmm.
0: And one time I was able to bring in Peter, and they just started talking about Miles. And weather report and Zawinol, and I'm here just drinking my soup. <laughs> this, this is my master's program right. right here. That's so
1: great. Oh man. Yeah,
0: it was great. It was great. And now Will Kennedy's
1: uh, t- uh, Will Kennedy took Indugu's uh, place. Oh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. So yeah, yeah. just the, the the quartet of juggernauts continues. It's,
0: it's, I would say the trio plus the roadie, but that's, that's me. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> the, the trio plus the groupie. I'm the groupie. Uh, but yeah, Roy is still there. Uh, Roy is 81. That's 82. amazing. He boxes three times a week. That I believe. Like I and he... and he runs every day.
1: Man. Un- he he
0: looks like you know, he could be my younger brother. Right. It's I mean insane. you see pictures
1: you see pictures of him and, and it's it's like, you know, I mean he looks like he's in his fifties. Yeah. It's uh, insane. Yeah. Staying young. Yep. <laughs>
0: he teases us he says you know i gotta carry the drums i gotta stay strong
1: to carry my drums well i mean he's not lying he is no he's not not. lying like that's (laughs) yeah if you're you're not fortunate enough to uh uh you know hire cartage or or have a roadie or if you just plain don't want to like yeah exactly you you gotta stay in shape last thing i wanted to talk to you about was this video that you did with jake uh recently oh. about about tuning like you guys you guys put together a 45 minute tuning video um Ed, and edited down to 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i'm sure i'm sure that afternoon yielded about three hours of of the two yeah. of you just <laughs> um but so you know there are a lot of uh there's just tons of tuning videos and some of them are useful and some of them are gimmicky. Um, But you guys just took the approach of like, we're going to start with the snare you know, mm-hmm. and we're then we're going to do the kick and then we're going to do the toms. And we're just going to talk yeah. about how to tune these things. We're not going to use any muffling. We're not going to use any, you know, crazy configurations of tensions around the lugs. It's just, we're not going to use a drum dial. Um, I interviewed a guy recently named uh, Rod Elkins, who's a fantastic drummer touring with a, a country artist named uh, Tyler Childers. And he was singing the drum dials praises. Um, yeah. Be, and I know it, it's like, it can be a useful tool uh but you you got no use for it at least in this video well here's the thing and i understand the drum dial
0: uh utility but the drum dial is not telling you what the drum where where the drum wants to sound what the drum wants to sound like right and this the, whole video I,
1: I, like i uh, sorry to interrupt you but like the it just yeah. kept coming up in your video with jake it's just like listen use your ears pay attention to the room use your feel like just listen to what the drum is telling you um exactly. and make decisions based on that
0: yeah now, once you find that sound, you can put the drum dial on every lug, and now you have information. Mm-hmm. So you, if you're in the middle of the tour or in the middle of a concert and something happens, your roadie can change the heads, put the drum dial in, and the tension will be close and the sound will be close to what you had. That is very useful. Yeah. But the first time you tune your drum, you tension your drum, you have to do the same thing. You have to listen to it. hmm You don't put the tuner on the guitar before you put the string. (laughs) Yeah. So you got to put the string, you tension the string a little bit, and then the tuner fine tunes it. Right. And you can hear it. Okay, fine. But, you know, you have to know what an E sounds like. Yeah. On a string.
4: Yeah.
1: So you will be there ballpark and then
0: you fine tune it with the
1: tuner. Mm Mm-hmm. So in this video, like there were a bunch of instances when, like you, you were hearing things, Jake was hearing things, uh, and you know, I was, I was hearing what you were talking about. Um, but I, I think for a lot of drummers, um, that sort of ear training doesn't necessarily come naturally, or maybe they haven't had enough experience to like know what they're hearing or or know what they're listening for um so i like i didn't watch the entire video i kind of skipped around it Um, no it's 45 minutes (laughs) i haven't i haven't watched it (laughs) so you i mean you might have covered this like in some part of the video but but do you have advice or recommendations for for drummers who want to kind of hone their ears in that way and develop that ear training um if they if they can't hear what they're looking for if they don't know what they're listening for um how do you recommend starting down that road of like honing your ears um for drum tuning? Pay attention. <laughs>
0: pay just pay attention, like really pay attention. We are and and I personally, in my empirical observation, I blame the remote control on the TV. <laughs> Our attention spans yep. have been reduced to nothing. Yes. To a six-second commercial, seven-second commercial. I remember I recorded comer- jingles in Venezuela that were one minute long. Wow. Then, then it went down to forty seconds. Then it went down to thirty. It went down to twenty. That and then I moved here, and now there are commercials that are twelve seconds long. Yeah, if that. I mean, there's commercials if on that. YouTube that are five. Exactly. And then, you know, because everyone has the clicker right. or the skip ad. So we have been trained to not pay attention for a long period period of time. Mm-hmm. We have been trained to, next, 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 oh, I just got killed on the video game. Okay, next life, so, <laughs> hold on, what did you do? How did you get killed? <laughs> Can you pay attention so you don't repeat the same mistake
4: again? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That kind of thing. We have been trained out of that. So sit with your drum. Get my <laughs> my kids. They make fun of me at all times. Well, <laughs> they're not kids anymore. But uh, <laughs> if I got a new symbol from Zildjian, a new specifically a new ride, I would be watching a baseball game, which I don't have to listen to because I'm watching the game mm-hmm. and start playing the symbol. Hmm and they would look at me and say what are you doing that and i would say you know i'm trying to develop a relationship with this symbol <laughs> and they would laugh at me but it's not something you pull out of the bag and put it on a stand right you have to get to know, you have to get to know the symbol how it reacts, what angle is best what what where do you want to hit it what kind of sounds do you get out of it indugo yeah. was big on that mhm and Dugu was huge on that. He always he always used three symbols. Right, right. Crash right and a China. Yep. And his hi hat, of course. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I can get seven different sounds out of each symbol."
4: Yeah.
0: Because I that I practice that. Mm-hmm. I get I try to develop the knowledge of the instrument. So same same applies to drums. Yeah. Also, you know. Uh, Listen to drummers. What kind of sound do do you like to listen to? Right. And then do some homework. We have Google. (laughs) Do some homework. What drums do you use? What drum heads do you use? Okay, so you use Ludwig and Aquarian. Okay, let me see. Okay, that's a beginning. So let me get a Ludwig drum. That's a great point. Get...
1: That's a great point because I think so many drummers, young drummers especially, just you know, they they want to be able to get X sound out of Y drum. Exactly. Right. Without exactly. really paying attention to like what does what is this drum good at? What does this drum want to do? What range does this drum like to be in? Um, and exactly you know, going back to what you were saying about just pay attention, like slow down and consider the information that the drum is throwing at you, whether it's on a single lug or the overall sound. Um, exactly. It's
0: You have kids trying to tune a, a Questlove drum set <laughs> to sound like Bonham. Right. What? You're just on the bass drum, you're 10 inches short, my friend. <laughs> just on the bass drum. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you have to, you have to keep all these things in perspective, mm-hmm. you know. So, and and he used coded emperors, and you're using pinstripes. Right. Well, that ain't gonna work. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. That's why what I mean when I say pay attention.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Know what you're trying to go for, which sounds you like. OK, so this is a sound I like. I really like uh, uh, Peter's sound. OK, so these days, he's using mostly a bubinga, Tama star bubinga, mm-hmm. with either coded ambassadors or uh, fiber skin diplomats. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know, I, you know, right, I know, Right. I hang out with him. So I know how to get that sound. If you're looking into Joel Barbara, he uses 60s and 70s Gretsch with Aquarian drum heads or calf, mm-hmm. depending on the occasion. Right. So now, you know, and he tunes way up. Yep. He tunes almost as up as Max Roach tuned for sessions. Yeah. So, okay, now I have a starting point, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to make my Vista Lights, Bonham Vista Lights, sound like Joe LaBarbera. Right. Not going to happen.
4: Yeah, yeah.
1: So you have to keep these things into consideration. The other thing that uh, kind of surprised me a little bit about that video was how like not precious you are about Heads like one of the first things I saw in the video was you turn that bass drum like head up and you put the head on it and you literally just sat on it and like bounced up and down on the head to get it seated. Um, and uh, it just it it just struck me because I was like, you know, we're so like we're so nervous about our heads and is the are we're gonna stretch it out or we're gonna fuck it up or like and you just like bounced up and down on this thing. And I think most drum heads are tougher than. We give him credit we for it. Yeah, absolutely. I got that from Simon Phillips. Really? <laughs> yeah. He, his first
0: video, his first instructional video was Protocol. Mm-hmm. And he had a beautiful Tama art star, you know, 224s and whatnot. And then he was talking about sitting the heads on the bass drums. And he proceeded to clean his shoes with a towel and jump on the bass drums. <laughs> wow. And. Um, I used to do that with my kids when they were younger. <laughs> like, okay, a new bass drum head and they would jump on it and they would have a blast Oh, it.
1: that's so great.
0: <laughs> and they would also say, Dad, is it time to change the bass drum head? <laughs> and I, I actually told Simon that story. He loved it. God, that's but, great. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm too old to be jumping. I can break my knees or whatever. So I just sit on it. But yeah, the drum heads will... And the more settled the drum heads are the easier they become to tune it's not gonna move
3: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: it's not gonna move once you've
1: dialed up it's dial it up it's good it's gonna stay yeah um have you uh like being in this room over the last year has upped my tuning game significantly um after coming to the realization that I didn't know jack shit about tuning, actually, <laughs> you know, putting mics, putting mics on, on a bunch of drums that I had tuned and I thought sounded good was like, actually, no, they sound like shit no. yeah. in this room. Um, so I don't, uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure whether or not you covered it in the video, but do you change your approach? Um, I mean, obviously we change our, our tuning approach depending what room we're in. Yes um, but in terms of like you know the the objective of tuning for a live show versus the objective of tuning for a recording session in terms of you know uh striking the balance between the tone you're after and the projection that you need for a lot of live shows, um c- just talk about that that balance a little bit
0: well there's there's a little uh, there's the issue is the microphone
1: mm-hmm.
0: so do you have? mics on a live show you sometimes most of the time when you're playing clubs you do not so the way the drum is going to project if it's a little higher pitched Mm -hmm. than what you think because sometimes they're very low and they speak beautifully to the microphone but they do not project they die three feet in front of the drum right there's no resonance and and that resonance is what helps you carry the sound
4: mm-hmm. uh,
0: One of the tricks I do is I do not muffle the front head on the bass drum at all when I'm pl- at all when I'm playing live mm-hmm. because that ring as even as annoying as you might feel it is right where you're at 10 feet in front you don't hear it mm-hmm. it's gone but the sound is still, beefy and wide and beautiful so that helps you project without a microphone yeah now the moment you introduce a microphone then you have to muffle that head because all you're going to hear is the harmonics
4: right right
0: so it depends not only on the room but it depends on the context do you is it that large enough room that requires microphones Then you tune for the microphone. Mm -hmm. But if if there are no... Like when I used to play at the Blue Whale. Right. uh, You know, the Blue Whale, if you wanted to record, they would put mics on you. But for the room, you did not need anything. Mm -hmm. So I usually... The front head was wide open. Yeah. I would muffle a little bit on the batter side so I don't get flutter or, you know, any unwanted overtones. But... And I actually... There's a video... um, that I did on, this, on my second CD release uh, gig there at the Blue Whale. I had a 14 by 16 uh, Gretsch bass drum. And it had a coated emperor on the batter side and a smooth white ambassador on the front side. Nothing inside. Hmm. Zero. <laughs> and that thing sounds fantastic. Yeah. On a uh, on the with the camera microphone, it just sounds incredible. Yeah, because it's a drum. It has tone. It has attack, and it projects. Right. It does everything you need it to do. Yeah. But that I did that because I had no microphone.
4: Sure. Right. Right. Um, it, you know
1: it it and a, like being in here has has really taught me a lot about the resonant heads specifically, whether it's on toms or on um, uh, the kick. And, uh, you know, like for so long, I, like I tuned for live situations cause that was, that's what I was in most of the time. Yeah. Um, so that's like, uh, you know, more, more high end, more sustain. Right. And I got in this room and my Toms were just like humming endlessly and mm. yep. Yep. And it took me like a, a lot of trial and error and a lot of YouTube videos, Um, to, to learn like how, how much the, the resonant head affects that. And now more often than not, like I've got my resonant heads on my toms, like pretty freaking tight. Like I would never have them that tight for a live thing because in in a bigger room or like outside, they'd just be totally dead. There would just be no sustain whatsoever. But exactly in in here, it just sounds like like I'm used to hearing them, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's the
0: thing. You got to tune to the room. Yeah, you got to tune to the room you're in. I mean, I and, and it it changes all the time. I did with that little Gretsch drum set. I did a session at uh, Ocean Way, and they sound completely different than they sounded uh, it, at uh, what's the other uh, East West. Yeah. It's a completely different room. Yeah. So they, they behave differently.
1: Yeah. And I think so many drummers are like, well, not so many, but I think something that gets drummers in trouble is being married to a certain sound or a certain pitch or a certain relationship between two drums. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you get into a different room or even if the temperature changes in your room uh you you know it doesn't work anymore and like you said just like slowing down and just paying attention to the drum paying attention to the room and being open to like other sounds other pitches shorter sustain longer sustain like what what wants to happen in this room exactly and if you just exactly go after what wants to happen and go along with that then you'll find great sounds
0: yeah, it's, there was a classical conductor. His last name was Chely Vidake, And he was Romanian, I think, or Czechoslovakian, something like that. And he was famous for hating the recording studio. Hmm. He would, there are like three albums with him, uh, maybe, because he never liked recording. He said, you have to change the tempo according to the room, hmm. the tempo of the piece, yeah. according to the room you're in. Because some rooms have more reverb than others. Yeah. So then you start you st- you have to slow down so you can have the the room be part of the concert. Mm, yeah. And then your presence, the audience presence in that room changes the room again. So you have to keep all these things in mind. And obviously, needless to say, I'm not a classical music director or anything at all, anything close to that. But the process is the same. Mm-hmm. What kind of room are you in? So do you really want your floor tone re- uh, ringing for three and a half, four seconds? Yeah, in a church. <laughs> so, you know, just be mindful of your surroundings and tune accordingly. yeah, without obviously sac- without sacrificing what what you want to play right, right. but but. Be mindful of these things. That's The video was mostly the process, mm-hmm. more than the results you got to. It's the process. It's, yep. What is it that you want to do with this? Okay. So it's a, it's a bit Colartian <laughs> in, in that, in that right. way. Yeah. You know, it's the process. So what is it that you want to do? You want the floor tone to ring one and a half seconds. Okay, perfect. Let's go for that. Mm-hmm. You want it to re- resonate for seven seconds. We'll try that too. Yeah. But it, the process is the same. You have to know what you want the drum to do, and, but you have to listen to the drum on of on what it wants to do.
1: Right. You have to slow down, slow down, yeah, slow down and pay attention. Exactly. Yeah. There's no other way, unfortunately.
0: Because <laughs> it would be nice to just snap your fingers and be there.
1: Yeah, no, but I don't think it's unfortunate because you know the 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 drum set is just a, it's a living, breathing thing. It's temperamental, uh, exactly. You know, uh, but the more we get to know it, the more we have like this this intimate relationship with it. The better the results are going to be. But like you said, there's no shortcut. The only way to to develop that relationship and to develop your ears is to slow down, pay attention, trial and error. Like it takes time. It does. It does. And I, you know, when I, when I was naively
0: enough, when I was in Venezuela, I just, I want, I started tuning my drums. So they would sound like Steve Gads or Peters Mm -hmm. on our recording. It's like, that's stupid i have no mics i'm not in the same room right My drums are completely different right but that was that's what started the quest hmm. it's like okay i have to find why i can't do this oh okay so there are 700 million variables
1: variables right
0: yeah <sighs> <laughs> so i have back to square one
1: yep yep well, Aron, it was it was so great to talk to you, man. It was great to see you. Oh man! Thank you very Thank much for you. doing this, and and shout out to our our, our buddy Jake Reed for uh, for hooking us up.
0: Yes, absolutely, Jake. Talk about
1: a, a master. He is killing it. He's winning the internet. He's playing just so beautifully. Uh, yep. Like I, I'm, I, I'm really in awe of of everything that Jake is doing. He's, he's yeah, just it's, it's, doing everything. It's such a high level. It's really annoying. <laughs> I've told him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've told him that. Yep. No, he's great. I, I thank him for me, please. I'll thank him too. Yeah. for hooking us up. It's great to see you, man. It's uh, I, I I'm I'm hope I hope you're killing it down there, man. You're at- in Atlanta, yes?
1: Yeah, yeah. Atlanta is treating us really well. It's been it's been really awesome. great, uh, and things are things are getting started back up here and there. Hopefully, they won't shut Beautiful. back down
4: here for Christ's sake. But
1: oh god, um, but yeah, Atlanta's Atlanta's been a great move for us, and and uh, really a, a great wonderful. a great move for me musically. That's awesome. It's great talking to you, Adon. Be well, man. Thank you, Zach. Great to see you. There you go. Love that guy. Thanks to Aaron for that talk. You can see why he's a beloved and integral part of the LA drumming community. Check out that tuning video he did. That's on Jake Reed's YouTube channel. Lots of great info there. And those two together are really fun to watch. We hope to see you at the Music City Drum Show. That's this Saturday, August 7th in Nashville. Go to musiccitydrumshow.com for more details. Come check it out if you're in town. Next week, Matt Krauss will be bringing you his interview with Joe McCarthy, drummer, educator, producer, Latin Grammy winner, and leader of the New York Afro Bop Alliance Big Band. Lots to dig into there. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, get vaxxed, and thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>